Father, as we look at the snow-capped peaks around us, we're reminded of the beauty of your holiness, the majesty of our God, the one who is the sovereign of the universe, the creator of this world, creator of our, creator of our very lives. And Father, we would this morning bow before you as our Lord and King. We would submit to your teaching through the Spirit of the living God. We're so thankful for the word which has come from your mouth to us, and I pray that we'll have ears to hear. And I ask that throughout the Sunday school this morning, you will be present in every class. You'll give peace and order in the uh, children's classes, and that the children will be attentive in hearing. And through every age group, you will bless and that you will accomplish your purpose. Lord, we thank you for your love and your constant mercy. In Christ's name, amen. I would like to begin this morning by reading from Genesis chapter 48, beginning at verse 13. Genesis 48, beginning at verse 13. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand towards Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. We'll stop there and we'll read the rest of the chapter in a, in a few moments. We noted last week and the week before as we studied through the first verses in this chapter that Jacob is basically on his deathbed. He senses that he is soon to die, and, and so the word goes out, and Joseph collects his two sons and goes up north from Memphis into the land of Goshen, the land of Ramses, where he is going to meet with his father, and he wanted his two sons to be in on the blessing that Jacob would give at the end of his life. And we noted that in this particular chapter, there was this symbolic uh, ceremony of the laying on of the hands in conjunction with the blessing that we read there and will continue to read um, in the next section. The blessing included, first of all, you remember, a reference to the faithful walk of Abraham and Isaac before the Lord. And this, of course, is establishing a track record for the family. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob walked faithfully before the Lord. And a walk of obedience enabled them to be the instruments of God. It isn't that by their efforts they became worthy. It's because through obedience they became channels that God could use and that God did use. And so based on the walk of Abraham, the walk of Isaac, and now the walk of Jacob, Jacob had the authority to bless the lads. Secondly, we noticed last week at the end of class the fact that Jacob acknowledged God as his shepherd. 
I think what's really important about this is that his, his statement here serves as a, as a proclamation of the interventional care of God. God is not the God of the distant sky. He is a God who intervenes here on this planet. He is a God who actually changes things in the lives of his people. He's a God who works all things together for good, as we read in Romans, for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, we know a good human shepherd is someone who, who guides his sheep into the right place. He protects his sheep. He provides for his sheep by bringing them into good pasture. And so as a human would do, so much more will God do as the good shepherd, as the shepherd of his sheep. God will guide and provide, and God will protect. And so this is the expression that Jacob is making here. And he's implying, of course, that this will go on beyond his life and be a reality in the lives of Ephraim and Manasseh and the others of his descendants. And then, thirdly, the final thing we noted last week was the reference to the angel who has redeemed me from evil. Now, we're going to, in a moment, talk quite a bit about redemption here, the concept of being redeemed here. But first of all, I want to remind us that in this passage we read the triplet. It's a, it's a triplet in Hebrew. You often remember, as you've studied through the Psalms, the psalmist will say something, and then he'll basically repeat it in a few other words. And this was very common, a way of Hebrew expression, of making a statement, then repeating it in, other word, in different words from the first, the same idea for reinforcement. And here we have a triplet where it says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. And I tried to emphasize last week that obviously when it, this triplet goes Elohim, Elohim, Malach, for angel, it cannot mean an angel in the sense of, of Gabriel or you know, uh, an angel in the general sense of the word. It must refer to the angel of the Lord, the theophany of Yahweh himself, that Jacob had experienced at least eight recorded times in Scripture. This, this theophany, this manifestation of the angel of the Lord. So he's talking about Elohim, Elohim, and Elohim as the angel of the Lord. Because, obviously, redemption cannot come from the hands of an angel. It can only come from God himself. It's important, I think, for us to note the reference here in that verse to redemption. The one who has redeemed me, he says. This is the first use in Scripture, up to this point through Genesis, of the verb to redeem. The opening line of verse 16 is a clear statement that evil requires redemption and that it is God who is the Redeemer. This is the first time it's just stated out flat like that in Scripture. Now, the idea is implied earlier. Obviously, Abel, we read about Abel, and the sacrifice which he made, which was acceptable unto God. And implicit in that was the concept of redemption and God being the Redeemer. But it was not overtly stated in Scripture as it is at this particular point. Jacob was a man who had failed often. 
Jacob was a man whose life was plagued by sin. Now, of course, none of us in our right minds would uh, be prepared to cast any stones at Jacob because certainly our lives are not much different. But through faith in God, he has become redeemed from evil. Redeemed from the ultimate punishment that comes from, for a life lived solely for evil purposes. In other words, to use the New Testament term, he has in effect been born again. Born again by faith in the angel of the Lord who had appeared to him, lo, those many times. We were listening this morning again, as we generally do as we're getting ready. We tape it so that we can listen to the whole thing later. I just catch little glips, glitches of it in the morning. Glitch, that's not a good word, is it? Little segments of it in the morning because I'm studying this, but... Uh, Erwin uh, Lutzer comes on uh, the, from Moody Church, and um, he was talking about the fact this morning that what was the source of redemption for those in the Old Testament? What really was the source of their redemption? And as he pointed out, their redemption was in the blood of Christ. Because Christ had been slain from the foundation of the world. Although the moment hadn't happened yet in our history, in God's mind it had already been made. And therefore, the Old Testament people were redeemed by the blood, by the sacrifice of Christ, just as we are. They were looking forward to it as we look back to it. It's the center point of history. And God is not bound, of course, by time or by our history. And so, I think we can use the term born again, even though it's a New Testament term, relative to what happened to Jacob, because his faith in Yahweh, in what Yahweh said, brought about his Redemption from evil. This concept of redemption is a theme that runs all the way through Scripture. I've put a couple of passages where we can at least, uh, if not directly, indirectly, see the, the concept here. Remember back in the third chapter of Genesis, verse 15, that oft-quoted verse where the Lord speaking to Adam and Eve as they were hiding in the garden, I will put enmity and speaking also to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you will bruise him on the heel. Speaking, of course, directly to the serpent, but within the hearing of, of Adam and Eve. This is the first statement of the plan of redemption that would come through the Messiah. The Messiah would be the seed of Abraham, Adam and Eve, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through Judah, uh, all the way down, of course, until Christ himself was born. And then, at the end of the book of Revelation, we see the impact of the concept of redemption in verse 11 of chapter 22. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. Let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter by the gates into the city. The, the blood of Christ, which washes us clean, which provides us with redemption. 
outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Then he identifies himself. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. The fruit of redemption. The fruit of redemption is eternal life in paradise with the Lord. Those who are not redeemed, those whose robes, as it were, were not washed in the blood of Christ, are those who are outside. And he lists those who are outside. And, and as we read that list, we have to recognize he is not saying that anybody who has ever practiced anything like that at any point in his life is outside. But he's talking about those who live it as a lifestyle, who have never turned to, to, to be redeemed. We who are redeemed sometimes have evil thoughts. We who are redeemed are not prevented from doing an evil act. But that is not our lifestyle. That is not how we live. That is not the goal of our lives because we have been changed. We have been made a new creature in Jesus Christ, as we're told in Corinthians. And as a new creature, our desires are different. We're convicted when we sin, hopefully. And we turn to God in, 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 in uh, agony over our sin and we repent and we go on. And we may fail again. I mean, the whole history of the nation of Israel is one of walking and crash, walking and crash, walking and crash, you know. And as we look at that, we can't say, oh, those, those crazy Israelites, they sure didn't know what they were doing because it's a mirror image of the way we live uh, so much. Now, hopefully, as we walk with the Lord and as we continue up the hill, as it were, that we fail less often, that we trust more that when sin comes, we more quickly resist it in the name of the Lord. But, but that comes with maturity. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, it's, it's not like you, you go back to the days of the, of the knights in shining armor. The, the young kid who is just knighted at 18 years of age and, and given his belt and his sword and able to go out as a knight is not going to be able to stand in battle toe-to-toe with, uh, with a 35-year-old knight who has been in battle for 20 years and is, a, is an expert at all of what he does. He, he's a neophyte yet. He's, he's young. He's inexperienced. And he's going to make many mistakes. And every once in a while, that mistake is fatal. And that's too bad. But um, if you survive, you, you become a mature individual. Now, obviously, as, as Christians... Uh, if we're in the Lord, we're going to survive in Him. But uh, the maturity comes through time, and the ability to walk faithfully comes through time. And that's why we fellowship with one another. That's why we study the Word. That's why we pray for one another, so that we will be stronger and more mature and able to be what Christ intends for us to be. The Hebrew word, which is translated to redeem, incorporates many concepts. It incorporates the concept of repurchase, the idea of restitution, the idea from Ruth of the kinsman redeemer, 
of the fact that the Redeemer, in order to redeem, has got to be related to the one being redeemed. And that's, of course, again, as Lutzer was saying this morning, one of the reasons why Christ had to become a human being, so that he could be related to us, and therefore he could redeem us as our kinsman redeemer. It includes the concept of avenging, of vindication, of ransom. All of these together give us the whole idea of what it means to be redeemed. We have been vindicated. We have been purchased. We have been avenged by God. In the Old Testament, God is called specifically the Redeemer more than a score of times. And I've looked at or looked up and, and put on the outline one of the most descriptive passages in Isaiah chapter 60, beginning at verse 15. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will, take, I will make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. You will also suck the milk of nations and will suck the breast of kings. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. I, the Lord, am your Savior, Savior and Redeemer. And who am I? The Mighty One of Jacob. God is our Redeemer. God is our Savior. Again, there just is no way to get around the fact that if Yahweh says He is our Savior and Yahweh says He is our Redeemer and Jesus says He is our Savior and Jesus says He is our Redeemer, you have to, you have to go off the deep end intellectually to deny the equality. You just have to do that because the equality is a direct connection between the Old and the New Testaments. Uh, an example, Titus chapter 2. Titus 2.11. This is a New Testament equivalent to the passage we just read in Isaiah. And again, it, it testifies to the deity of Christ. Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. He is our Redeemer, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now, those, of course, who don't want to accept the deity of Christ, they put an and in there, you know, our great God and Savior and Jesus Christ. But that's not the intent at all here. Jesus Christ is our great God and our Savior. It is He who has redeemed us. And once we have been redeemed, we are a people of His own possession. We are the sheep of His pasture, and He is our good shepherd. And then we become zealous for good deeds. Doesn't happen overnight, does it? Good deeds are slow in coming sometimes. But as we walk with Him, we become more and more zealous to do good deeds. 
not as a Boy Scout, but as a reflector of who Christ really is, because Christ was a doer of good deeds, because it was his nature. He couldn't do any other kind. And the more and more the nature of Christ is in us, the more and more we do good deeds, and it becomes a zealous thing in our lives. The same statement that we've been looking at in Genesis chapter 48, verse 16, also reveals that Jacob had a sense of sinfulness. He knew that he was a sinner. Now, any honest person is going to acknowledge that he is a sinner. It's intellectually dishonest to claim otherwise. And of course, obviously, in our day and age, with with the proliferation of the theory of evolution that all of us have just kind of come up from some slimy ooze and we're just the high point of this evolution, then we can probably uh, easily deny that uh, there's any such thing as sin because, you know, do lions sin? Do tigers sin? Do amoebas sin? You know, what, what is sin? Uh, but, but anybody who, who recognizes and, and is an honest person in looking at himself knows that Human beings have a moral factor which no other creatures have. And moral factor cannot come through evolution. I mean, there's so many things that couldn't possibly come through evolution which are true of human beings. And, and, and of course, what they do is reflect the image of God. No creature was made in the image of God save the human being. And therefore, we are so different. And there's this sense of sinfulness I think I'd noted this once before, maybe more than once before. But that was one of the things that was driving Martin Luther to what he ultimately did in his life, was this sense of sin. No matter what he did, he always felt like he was a sinner. He could do all the penance he wanted. You know, he could climb all the stairs on his bare knees he wanted and bleed all he wanted, and he still felt like a sinner. And that finally drove him to the place where the Spirit of God could turn the light on. And, and suddenly he could recognize that the just shall live by faith. We're converted by faith, not by our actions, not by any works which we do. And it's only through that faith in the redeeming work of Christ that our sin is passed off from us to him. From all that he had learned, that is all that Jacob had learned about God, he was convinced that Yahweh was his redeemer. He knew this truth through the teachings of his grandfather Abraham and his, his father Isaac. And he knew this directly through his own encounters with God. When he met God that first time at Bethel, and then, of course, when he returned 20-some-odd uh, years later and met God again at Bethel and the other intervening times and subsequent times that God appeared to him, through this he knew God was his redeemer. I think, though, especially vivid in Jacob's mind was the story told him certainly over and over again around the family campfire by Isaac. Because it was Isaac who had been taken by his father Abraham to the top of Mount Moriah. And it was Isaac who said to his father, well, here's the wood and uh, here's the fire and all of this, but where's the sacrifice? It was, a, it was a very insightful question and kind of an obvious question, I suppose, for Isaac to ask. And uh, Abraham's answer was so profound. God will provide for himself a sacrifice. God will provide the lamb. Now, whether Abraham at that time understood that he was prophesying 
that Jesus Christ would become the Lamb of God slain from the foundations of the world or not? We, we don't know. But certainly we can read that in, into, this, into that passage. And as Isaac related that, certainly it, it, uh, it clicked inside of Jacob and, and he understood there was something profound about God being the Redeemer. Abraham was very impressed by what God did, remember? On the top of Mount Moriah, when he was about ready to slay his son, and, and God, through the angel of the Lord, appeared to him and said, do not slay your son, and there was the ram over there caught in the thicket, and a ram was sacrificed in, as a substitute for his son, Abraham, at that point, then referred to God as, well, the most frequent translation is Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh the provider, God the provider. And when Abraham referred to God as the provider, we, we so often today think of Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh the provider, as meaning, well, he makes sure I have food today and that I have a car that works and a house in which to live. And, and definitely he does that. But certainly the concept in Abraham's mind and the key concept behind Jehovah Jireh is that God provides redemption for us. He gives us eternal life because that's so much more important than whether we have food today or enough food today or a, a nice warm home for tonight. Those are pretty critical to most of us, but not near as critical, of course, as our ultimate redemption. And so Abraham saw God as the provider of redemption. And his son was redeemed right there in the top of Mount Moriah, as it were, because Abraham was prepared to sacrifice him. And I, I think that account, whatever, to whatever extent Jacob understood that, I think by the time he was on his deathbed, that uh, in some way he understood God's provision of redemption in that act in his father's life. Jacob's prayer further was that the God who had provided for his father on the top of Mount Moriah and who had redeemed him, Jacob, that that God would bless these lads as I put my hands upon him. A little inconvenient this way, but nevertheless, that God would bless these two young men. That these two young men, and, and certainly this was Jacob's prayer, that Ephraim and Manasseh would walk before God as Abraham and Isaac had, that they would understand God as their Redeemer as Jacob had, and that they would know Him as their shepherd, as Jacob had known God as his shepherd. I think every one of us, if it were possible, to just put our hands on top of our, our child or our grandchild and, and pray a prayer like that and know it was all going to happen just instantaneously, I mean, there wouldn't be anything that could stop us from doing it. But of course, we know it means that we have to go beyond. We have to go beyond and pray and pray and pray and pray throughout the remaining years of our lives. And we have to live before these young people, children, grandchildren, whoever it is, faithfully. As Jacob had, not perfectly, but Jacob had followed God and basically walked with him. And so must we. We can't just say, well, my job's over. Kids are out of the home now. 
I could just do the things I wasn't able to do before. Hopefully that's not our attitude in the sense of anything that might not be a good example, at least, to our, to our children and our grandchildren. But we continue to be committed to prayer for them. It's so important. It's critical. Jacob then prayed that his name and the name of his father and the name of his grandfather would live on in Ephraim and Manasseh. And was that prayer answered? <laughs> that prayer was abundantly answered down through the pages of Scripture. We read it over and over again. Their descendants, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, and their descendants kept referring to themselves as the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the three great patriarchs. I, I'm sure that, uh, let's say, oh, ten generations down the line, that uh, the, they look back and, and in their minds, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been semi-deified, you know, made to be these, these much larger-than-life individuals, paragons of virtue, people who had walked with God without error, you know, probably the way they came through in their minds. That's why God gives us the scripture, so we can find out the real story. <laughs> and we can read that Abraham had feet of clay, and Isaac had feet of clay, and Jacob had feet of clay, so we don't feel so lonely as uh, we struggle in life. But they referred to themselves as the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And throughout the Old Testament... And even to this very day, these people refer to themselves as the sons of Jacob, the children of Israel, or simply Israel. And I, I, I really think it's, well, what does it tell us? The people today who are living in what we would call the, the Palestine of the, of the New Testament period, the people today who are living there, who have recently come back and re-inhabited the land or reconquered the land, do they call themselves, or do they refer to their nation as Judah? After all, that's the nation that existed there last. That's the nation that was carried off into Babylonian captivity. That's the nation that returned uh, in the second exodus from Babylon. They are the Jews, the people of Judah. But do they call their country Judah? No, they call their country Israel. Israel. All the people around the world who, who are able to read and write know of Israel, if for no other reason than they know of the country. So the, the name of Jacob is proclaimed worldwide, even today, 4,000 years later. Was Jacob's prayer answered? I guess so. The last part of Jacob's blessing upon his grandsons was that they would grow into a multitude. <laughs> Have you ever put your hand on your kid and say, go and grow into a multitude? <laughs> uh, be careful. <laughs> what Lois and I are finding at this point in life is the birthdays sure come around often. <laughs> As you have the birthdays of your children and of your children's spouses and then of your children's children. And it seems like there's hardly a month but which there's two or three birthdays you have to remember and if it weren't for my wife, I'm afraid they would go unremembered most of the time. I'd remember them late, if at all. But uh, go and grow into a multitude, and, and they did. Not long before uh, the nation of Israel entered into the land of Canaan after their captivity in uh, Egypt and the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the census was taken. 
You've heard of the book of Numbers, right? <laughs> the book of the census, if you, if you will, or the censuses. And in that census, the males 20 years old and older were numbered. The, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh by that time had grown to 85,000 men 20 years old and upward, which, by the way, was 15% of the total nation. When you multiply that by the factor which would give you a conservative total for the whole, you're talking about the fact that they had grown into a number exceeding a third of a million. Grow and multiply. <laughs> and so they did. And of course, they would even grow beyond that. But a third of a million strong, they would become in just a few centuries. Verse 17, Genesis chapter 48. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he, shall, he also shall be great. However... His younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them on that day, saying, By you Israel shall pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. And I will give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Again, remi uh, remembering, as I mentioned last week, that the act of placing hands was a symbolic act denoting the transfer of blessing. And in, in that day, the right hand was the, the greater hand of blessing, the less, left hand the lesser hand of blessing. And because the firstborn was considered to be the, the more important, the, the, the son of leadership, the son through which the transfer of, of the father's power and energy and authority would come, that, that, that right hand was supposed to go on the eldest, which was Manasseh. But Jacob did not do that. And Joseph was disturbed by this. Dad, you got it all wrong. <laughs> I, I let you, Dad, you, your cataracts are getting you down. You can't see what you're doing. You know, why'd you cross your hands? I'm not dumb. I put the right one, you know, the, the, the older one in front of your right hand and the younger one in front of your left hand. Why, why are you doing this? He was very disturbed. We don't know. Scripture doesn't say why he crossed his arms and, and placed his right hand on Ephraim and, and left hand on Manasseh. That is, it doesn't say what energized him to do that. Of course, we believe that God did that. But the passage tells us that this displeased Joseph. And the word is very strong here. It's not like Joseph thought, oh, Dad, what are you doing that for? It's like, whoa, this man's making a big mistake here. It wasn't just a small little error. It was a serious mistake, and therefore it needed to be corrected. And so he grabbed his father's right hand and started to move it over to the elder's head. But Jacob rebuffed him. And Jacob informed Joseph, I know what I'm doing. He says, I know, my son, I know. I may be, you know, 147, but I know what I'm doing. I may be blind, but I know what I'm doing. 
God had moved him to do this, certainly. And God had moved him to give the specific words of blessing which he did. We have to believe when we pray, when we prepare to serve God, and we pray that God will be served, we have to trust that he is served. We have to trust that what we are doing, if we have honestly sought his wisdom and direction, and we have prayed fervently for his empowerment and his blessing, we have to believe that what is happening is his plan. What else can we do? But it does, of course, it does require that we be believing people, and that we be people who are constantly seeking God's cleansing and washing that we might be his instrument of righteousness, that we don't just plow ahead and blunder on without constantly standing in submission before our Lord. And so Jacob, as he crossed his hands, did so without saying, oh, by the way, Joseph, God has just said, this is what I'm supposed to do. He just did it, and it's implicit in his action, and in then his later words, that God was motivating him to do this because he prophesied, oh, Manasseh will be a great people, but Ephraim will be a greater people. The younger will be the greater. And so the scripture says, and therefore he put Ephraim over Manasseh. I don't know how much that impacted the two young men at the moment. Do you? What, what do you suppose went through Manasseh's mind? We can figure pretty much what went through Ephraim's mind. <laughs> you know? Oh, good. <laughs> Get back at this dude for all he's done to me. No, hopefully not. <laughs> hopefully those weren't his thoughts. But it must have been frustrating to Manasseh to be the firstborn and to be demoted, in effect, uh, to that of the younger. But this prophecy would be specifically fulfilled in the generations and in the centuries that would follow. The tribe of Ephraim would come to control the whole central portion of the land of Canaan. The tribe of Ephraim would be headquartered in the hill country just to the north of Jerusalem, and this hill country would be called the hill country of Ephraim. In those days it was a forested land. <laughs> Today it's a stony land. And, and what was significant is that it was I mean, the Ephraim was, was given this territory right smack on top of the north-south ridge route that ran through the heart of the land, and one of the major cross routes from east-west from the coast over the Jordan Valley crossed right through the center of Ephraim. So Ephraim was at a, at a, at a position of power there in the country relative to the, to the other tribes. Now, what happened in the history of Israel illustrates the significance of Ephraim. You remember Saul became king, and then David was granted the kingship, and then his son Solomon. But when Solomon passed on, his son Rehoboam was not a wise man. And his son Rehoboam basically rebelled against the Lord and, and uh, demonstrated his own arrogance. And as a result, ten of the tribes of Israel said, we have nothing to do with the house of David any longer. And they followed a rebel by the name of Jeroboam. And thus, Israel was split into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel, which would incorporate the ten tribes, other than Judah and, interestingly enough, 
Benjamin. Isaiah would refer to the kingdom, the northern kingdom, as Ephraim. And Ephraim would become synonymous with the northern kingdom. Ten tribes, all the tribes except Judah and Benjamin, to some extent Simeon, would be in the north. And yet the whole thing would be referred to by the blanket name Ephraim. And Isaiah, in referring to an impending attack that the Assyrians were making in the day that Isaiah lived, in Hezekiah's day, he would say that the days are going to be as bad as the day in which Ephraim separated from Judah. When Jeroboam led the ten tribes away, and, and cease to submit to the house of David, that the attack of the Assyrians would be as bad as that day when Ephraim split with Judah. Jeremiah gives an illustration also of this use of the term in Jeremiah chapter 31. Verse 9 we read, With weeping they shall come, and by supplication I will lead them, and I will make them walk by streams of water, on a, path, on a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Well, what's he talking about, you know? He's, he's using it in a generic way because Ephraim was not only not the firstborn of Joseph, but Joseph wasn't the firstborn, you know, literally, of, of Jacob. And then verse 20, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him, and I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Ephraim became a synonym for the entire northern kingdom of Israel. And over and over again in the prophets, particularly in the minor prophets, you find this repeated. Hosea does it the, the most. 36 times Hosea refers to Israel as Ephraim. So Ephraim was blessed above Manasseh, so much so that his name became synonymous for the whole nation.